0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 191, Atlanta Eagle Replay. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey, everyone. Happy Friday. So this weekend is Pride in Atlanta. And while I would have loved to have a new episode, I couldn't resist sharing one from two years ago that came out this exact month where I interviewed Charlie Payne inside the Atlanta Eagle. We learned about Atlanta's LBGTQ history through the lens of the Eagle. Which in itself tells us the story of Poncillion's transition from Grand Residential Street to Commercial Corridor. So, shortly after the episode was released in 2020, the Atlanta Eagle closed its doors on Poncillion Avenue due to a mix of business impacts, including COVID and a roof failure on the mid century part of the building. The building we're talking about today, 306 Ponds, also known as a Celebrity Club and the Atlanta Eagle, was designated as a local landmark by the city of Atlanta, and it's now protected from demolition by the city's Historic Preservation Ordinance. This makes it the first structure in the Deep South protected under a historic zoning protection for its LBGTQ Plus history. Being designated a landmark building, all changes to the exterior have to go through special zoning process that includes Atlanta Urban Design Commission and city commissions. And the designation also allows a property owner to sell transferable development rights, so like air rights of the property. Now, the Atlanta Eagle actually reopened in the Ansley Mall Square Shopping Center, which if you listened um, back to Stonewall of the South, has its own moment in Atlanta's queer history. And so there's a lot of events going on there this weekend for Pride. But if you didn't listen to this episode, um, it's one of my favorite interviews I've done. Charlie and I are also great friends. And so I hope you enjoy Alright, we are here inside the Atlanta Eagle, and I'm with Charlie Payne. So, Charlie, introduce yourself.
1: Thanks, Victoria. Uh, I am Charlie Payne. I am a board member of Historic Atlanta. I lead the organization's LGBTQ Historic Preservation Advisory Committee, and the Atlanta Eagle is one of the highlights of our 2020 plan. And now we're going to be entering 2021, and it sounds like We're going to be having a great time making sure this building stays with us.
0: Yeah. So it was just listed. um, The Georgia Trust puts out their places in peril and there's three properties in Atlanta. So two are kind of connected, which is right next door. And we're going to mention that a little bit. But um, I wanted you to tell everybody the whole history because so many people do not even understand that there is a house from the 19th century behind this building. Let's start there.
1: The Quimby House was actually built in eighteen ninety eight for the daughter of William Arnold Hemphill, one of the past mayors of Atlanta, that owned a lot of property along de Leon Avenue and Monroe Drive. So Lula Bell moved in to the house with her husband L. D. Tequel Quimby in eighteen ninety eight. That was actually featured in the Atlanta Constitution on a women in society ad.
0: Was this a high society address living on Ponce de Leon?
1: Oh, so yes, Ponce de Leon Avenue was definitely one of the most stately streets in the city of Atlanta. It was a little bit north of the city at the time, and you have to understand there was not much north of Ponce. So the Eagles, one of the oldest buildings in all of Ponce de Leon Avenue, and potentially the second oldest building in Midtown. When I say Midtown, I'm discussing the uh, Midtown Neighborhood Historic District. The only other building that certainly would trump this one is the SCAD House. Ponce was a streetcar corridor, and it was the place to live at the time. And when the house was built in 1898, and even up to five years after, it was cited as being one of the most pretty and most modern homes in the entire city of Atlanta. It's, It's really funny to understand what is modern yeah I know thats my question what it, yeah <laughs>
0: what did it look like do we know
1: yeah so we do know know what it looks like it was a uh, Tudor Revival style house really? and you can actually still see plenty of elements on the back of the building if you go into its rear parking lot
0: so it was a family home to the Quimbys they lived there for a few years that we know yeah
1: so they lived there for five years and then it seems in 1905. It was sold to, um, with renters in between, it was sold to uh, William Hancock, who purchased the home. And when I say purchased the home, we're talking about the entire lot, which at the time, the Eagle went all the way to Bedford Avenue, which is now Argonne.
0: Oh, so this street right here, the neighboring street, was the whole lot.
1: Yes. So it was an extra large lot. And what ended up happening is by 1910, William and his family uh, decided to move into a new house they constructed on the exact same lot. And that is what is known as the Kodak Building now. So
0: the Kodak Building is a house, or was a house also. Yes. That one, I don't think, I did not know that because it doesn't look like it at all.
1: The Hancock House was also very stately for the time. It was built in 1910 as an Italian Renaissance Revival-style home. Though a lot of those elements are gone. You can still see some of the decorative bracketing remnants of the old large windows on the uh, main floor. Yeah, the the brick on the side. I noticed Mm -hmm. that the other
0: day. So, so why did they build a house right next door? Did they sell this house, the Quimby house?
1: From what I can understand in the research, this house tended to be rented a lot. Seems to me that the Adair Realty (laughs) Company—they were the ones that called uh, it—it was the most modern and pretty home. Oh, (laughs)
0: okay. Marketing. So for how long does this house stay residential? Or even Ponce? I mean, Ponce is not, I don't think of Ponce de Leon today as residential. So when Mm -hmm. does that start to shift?
1: Ponce de Leon's residential lifespan, you still have to look at it in different segments. So this first segment from Peachtree Street Street down to what is Ponce Springs and Ponce Ponce City Market Market now. That's the oldest segment, and that was a uh, trolley line that was pulled by a mule um, that eventually was electrified. After that, there's the section that then goes to Briarcliff Road, and then there's the Druid Hills development. When this was the Grand Residential Corridor, it ended at Pont City Market. But then as the area of Virginia Highlands developed Ponce Highlands, soon after Druid Hills, which came first— Ponce de Leon over here near Peach Street started serving a more commercial and business interest. People didn't really live here anymore. You traveled to the suburbs and then came back in yeah. town.
0: It's it's so funny. You see that in every neighborhood. You know, Inman Park was fashionable. And then you moved to Ansley Park and then Buckheads. You're saying Ponce is the same thing. People are essentially moving out more towards Druid Hills.
1: Yeah. And so as people moved out towards Virginia Highlands, Ponce Highlands, Druid, Druid Hills, uh, The grand houses of Ponce really changed use for commercial activity, and some buildings, instead of getting demolished, they actually were altered for decidedly commercial use. And that's what is so interesting about the Eagle and the Kodak, and I might also mention uh, the building that houses poppies down the street. It's also an old house that was turned. Yes. that's. I
0: did not know that. I'm going to go look tomorrow.
1: (laughs) You should also get a poppy sandwich there. They're so good. But yeah, so the eagle ended up changing first from what I understand. The last resident that I can find that lived in the house was from 1946. There are a number of stories from the 1930s and 40s that I found of funerals that were held inside the house for family members that got hit by a milkman up the street. Oh my god. (laughs) And a bunch of other random events that ended up happening here. But by 1949, uh, the building ended up being changed for commercial use. The parking lot was put in place. They tore down the garage, which would have been a carriage house at the time. Oh, okay. And then the front yard of the Quimby House received a very large commercial addition without any setback. It went from the sidewalk sidewalk. all the way to the house. Which is
0: what it has now, technically. Okay.
1: The room we're sitting in is one of those units.
0: And so it was two units, because right now you just see the Eagle as one square, but you're saying it was built as two businesses
1: when they built the commercial edition on the front if you stand across the street today you can still kind of see it the commercial edition has three sections there's the far left windows or those initially served home to a realty firm the middle part of that fenestration is the doorway to the Atlanta eagle now that was actually a hallway that would go to the the house behind the commercial editions
0: oh because the house was a business or businesses as well
1: yes the oh. house ended up being a uh, you're gonna think i'm absolutely crazy but uh, it was equivalent of drano factory at one point really it yep <laughs> it was also a motorized mattress company
0: in the house that doesn't like make sense in, in the
1: house i don't know Where they did this or what? You've got to see some of these advertisements for the motorized mattress. They show someone putting a baby on (laughs) a mattress and the baby is supposedly asleep once you turn it on. It's hilarious.
0: So it's like a vibrating mattress? It's a vibrating mattress. Oh my God, it's great. So Drano, vibrating mattresses.
1: And then gun store. And
0: gun store. Oh my gosh. And now gay bar. This is great.
1: But don't forget the flower (laughs) shop that was also in the unit we're sitting in. So,
0: okay. Realty office. In this unit? Realty
1: office and flower shop. Flower shop. And
0: And then what about on the right side?
1: Yeah, so this is 302. (laughs) The middle would have been 304, which is the hallway. In the unit furthest to the east, which is 306, that was a restaurant. And it opened as Capri Italian Restaurant in 1949. And it's funny because you actually see some of the first advertisements for that. Was supposedly a famous chef at the time. Okay, that was
0: my question. Was it like a fancy restaurant or it, just like a regular working class restaurant?
1: There were several articles that I was able to find. It obviously was super fancy. My favorite part was that there were murals painted onto the walls and like stuff. Like Italy. Oh yeah, and now, <laughs> and now the people in the LGBTQ community—that's their dance floor.
0: So that's that part over there that we just were sitting in. That's yes. the Italian restaurant. Yes. So how long? Is, are all of those businesses operating?
1: All of those businesses seemed to operate until about like 1984. From what I understand, the LGBTQ community significance really started coming into play in 1985. Before we get into that, I will say um, the Eagle initially only operated in the 306 unit.
0: Even when the Eagle was here, in that small unit, there was other businesses.
1: Yes, there was actually two gay bars in here at once.
0: Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, how did this start?
1: Just to give people a little bit of background of LGBTQ spaces and yes, please how we even get to 1985, I like to take people back to Virginia Highland. So a year after the first gay space opened in this building, you have a Supreme Court that rules the homosexual consensual relations... I could not find a better way to phrase that, aka Um, sodomy, (laughs) yes, um, was illegal. And so you have to understand that the LGBTQ community faced so many government sponsored acts of discrimination, whether that was through law, whether that was raids. um, But then there was also the social control that you couldn't even be. In your own home, at yeah. work, or in public, the need for LGBTQ spaces comes from the fact that you could not be yourself anywhere. anywhere. Yeah, so it's a little bit scary back then that you could lose everything. Little fact that I guess I skipped over. Uh, we kind of. Are we talking
0: about RuPaul? Yep,
1: yeah, we're yes. about to talk about some RuPaul. <laughs> this is really Atlanta's strongest tie to RuPaul. Really? Not the I'm Purple not House? Sure. No, no, Ru only lived in the Purple House for a short time you can really say that history was made in this building. Typically, for buildings to be considered historic for associations, whether it's to events or people, they say it's 50 years. Yeah. But people have to understand how significant Rupaul is to the LGBTQ community. I used to do research on buildings that weren't significant for their LGBTQ association. It was much easier for me to find the history up until 1988 really so a lot of the history i have even some of the history i've documented i've over 42 pages of documentation on this building that's excluding ads and photographs and all that all of the lgbtq stuff was so hard to find and that is because lgbtq people weren't really able to get their message out through th- news outlets where we are now looking at the georgia trust putting
0: yeah the, the first. atlanta eagle yes or Placed making strides. Exactly. <laughs> so you're saying it was even hard to get this late 80s history?
1: Oh, yeah. Really? We, so a lot of the history that I was able to find is actually interviews that I've done. Because even some of the best LGBTQ periodicals, I'd say, a lot of those have also been lost. And there was even a fire that some say was on purpose of some of our Atlanta LGBTQ media. But I, I do remember that... It was a little bit tricky. What I did end up figuring out is that, do you know Eats?
0: Yes, down the street.
1: So the story of the LGBTQ Association of the Atlanta Eagles starts at Eats. So before Eats was Eats, which I would already say is like a landmark in itself, it was called the Nitery Club. And that was a club run by Larry T., the famous DJ in New York and a band called The Now Explosion. So the Nightery Club was run in a very pro-LGBTQ inclusive manner.
0: Was it and specifically it, a bar for the community? That is a
1: great question. Yeah. It's really complicated. The intention of the spaces that Now Explosion created really was in a way to be pro-LGBTQ, but it was not solely LGBTQ. Okay. Now Explosion and Larry T wanted to have spaces where LGBTQ people were welcome and could also perform their punk rock music. So LGBTQ bars wouldn't play live music. They would only play music videos. Uh, 688, the famous uh, New Wave club on Spring Street, they were a little bit gay-friendly, but I've heard quotes of band members of Now Explosion saying that they were told you could perform... Sometimes, but we don't want it to get too gay. And so I just thought that was super interesting. And so they ended up creating their own spaces. And um, when Niteri Club closed, and I believe it was 1984, they ended up taking the letters of Niteri Club, Niteri Club sign. And imagine splitting up all these letters. Okay. And putting them back together. They created the Celebrity Club at 306 Pont de Leon Avenue. The Celebrity Club was in the units that are 302 and 304. So that middle section where there's now a wall right when you walk in, that was where the stage was for the Celebrity Club. You had people like Laurie Anderson, the Butthole Surfers. There are rumors that D. Light also performed here, Driving and Crying. And then RuPaul, which in my opinion is huge. It was in 19... Eighty-five, where he actually was employed here at Celebrity Club, because the members of Now Explosion were his best friends. One of the members, she went by Lady Claire. She actually ended up giving RuPaul his first wig, which it fascinates me to think that there was a all, time before I he know was who exactly you, yes, I know what you're saying. And so RuPaul worked here. He always wore his androgynous bow wow wow outfits, long hair. I don't even know how to describe all of his outfits without giving him justice. Uh, So I'm not even going to try. But it was really here that he realized his full potential. There are stories of him also working at weekends and all that a little bit later in the 80s. But it was here where he performed as a solo artist. There are pictures of him sharing his first solo album called Sex Freak here in the Celebrity Club. I can share those photos with you. Oh, yes,
0: send them. I'll I'll post them.
1: And then he also had a punk rock band called the Wee Wee Pole, which I'm not going to (laughs) try to guess what that means. Um, I think we can all take a wild stab at it. But then also, he experimented with his drag in a very unique way, and he went so far as to creating a fake TV show in the building. Yeah, which, in, in my opinion... Is a great foreshadowing of what he yeah. would eventually push on to do. Push drag into the international mainstream television.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the first time I experienced or saw drag for most suburban heterosexual kids.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I find it fascinating that heterosexual people of society even watch Drag Race. That that amazes me. You just said that. Yeah, but Drag Race is huge in our community and even not on TV. There's also a whole drag culture. And I really do have to give a shout out to some of the drag queens in the city of Atlanta that have really done some great political work. I especially give a shout out to Brigitte Bidet for when Burkhart's had a lot of their drama with racism they pushed their way and got the owners to change hands so we weren't spending money in a place like that but back to 306 by 1969 after the stonewall riots uh, lgbtq individuals really started to state claim to their own spaces and also express themselves more freely and not put up with what's been historically going on and still continues to go on across america and so in New York, by 1970, Jack Modica ended up buying a Long pub called the Eagles Open Kitchen and shut it down, spray painted the entire thing black, <laughs> every element, and then opened it as the Eagles Nest. I say that because New York really got a head start. The Atlanta Eagle ended up opening in 1988, though it's still historically significant. It's connected
0: to this New York Eagle's Nest. Yes. Where's that connection?
1: Yes. So that connection, if you look around you right now, it is very dark. Yes. There's a lot of black spray paint. And this building has a similar story. When another gay bar closed down in this building, that was Renegade Saloon.
0: Renegade Saloon. Okay.
1: It was a short-lived gay bar, but it was also a leather Levi bar. It ended up moving from Virginia Highland. The Texas Drilling Company, which was also a gay leather bar, he ended up closing Renegades down, spray painting the entire thing black, opening it up as the Eagle.
0: And so he was modeling it after that New York after, Eagle.
1: Yeah, so the Atlanta Eagles one of several. There are Eagles in Tokyo. Really? There are Eagles in New York, Providence, Rhode Island, San Francisco, Los Angeles. The DC Eagle just closed a few months ago. The Minneapolis Eagle closed yesterday.
0: And all because Um, of COVID.
1: COVID's been really impacting these spaces.
0: We talked about this. They're not a franchise exactly. It's all independently owned, but they all share this family, what, like origin story of New York?
1: I guess that's how you put it. (laughs) I've really struggled to try to describe this to people. Basically, all Eagles are independently owned. They're not a franchise there's no, they don't have board no similar meetings or investor, something. no okay. board meetings. Really, the Eagle, you have to look at it as a family of independently owned LGBTQ bars that share similar style, style, style? <laughs> of their interiors. <laughs>
0: Interior dec- design. Yeah, so
1: a lot of them are black, okay. um, but not only are the interiors reflective of that, but also the persona of the s- staff and oh. the customer's basically the eagle family of each city, you'll notice that eagles across the country and the world are some of the most masculine-looking spaces, yet they're some of the most inclusive spaces that you'll ever be in. It doesn't matter whether you're black, white, it doesn't matter if you are a woman, you identify as transgender to anyone, the eagle's always here for you. Really? Oh, definitely. I would say that the eagle is the most diverse LGBTQ bar in the city of Atlanta.
0: That's awesome. That's amazing. I did not know that.
1: I will say that there are certain niche crowds within the LGBTQ community that really call the Eagle home. To many, it's the only place they feel comfortable. Even in the LGBTQ community, there is still discrimination. A lot of people feel um, blindsided when I say that sometimes, but we have our issues sometimes, and we don't need to cover that up. Yeah, we've definitely gotten really good in Atlanta uh, about healing some of those divides. But the Eagle's always been a place of strong inclusivity.
0: So since 1987, you're saying it opened?
1: 1988, 88,
0: And it was smaller, so you're saying it was just on that one side. When did it expand?
1: The Eagle opened in a smaller unit. At the time, it was moving into a building that also housed Renegade Saloon. Renegades was only here for about a year, so it he got here in 1987. That's why there's some confusion okay. about when the Eagle really got started. So um,
0: were they open at the same time for a while? They
1: were open at the same time that for a while. That is so
0: funny. So you just hop right through the hallway here, check out different bars. <laughs> By
1: 1988, the Eagle seems to have had the entire building.
0: Not just the front? The
1: front, but also the back. Got it. Yeah.
0: And then the Eagles. Eagle. I don't want to skip on the... Can we talk yes. about that? Okay.
1: Yeah, we can definitely talk about that. And
0: this was recent history.
1: Yeah, but it's important history. No,
0: that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's, so, you know, I don't, I always say like, oh, I don't want to talk about anything after 1950, but this it's almost frightening how recent this was.
1: Yeah, so I would say that the Atlanta Eagle Raid is the most significant event that has ever shaped LGBTQ politics slash relations in the city of Atlanta, possibly even the Southeast uh, when it comes to municipalities and LGBTQ constituents. So on September 10th, 2009, in a kind of like SWAT-style raid, the Red Dogs unit of the Atlanta Police Department ended up coming into the Atlanta Eagle and throwing about 30 to 40 patrons on the ground, including staff, by the way, and handcuffing them for up to 30 and 90 minutes. As you would be aware, that is
0: completely illegal.
1: Yes, especially <laughs> where in the end they found absolutely nothing. No patrons were charged with any crimes. But it was during that time that a number of people were discriminated upon for their sexuality. Yeah, you said there they were a were number of slurs there out. Were, there were a number of slurs. So what ended up happening is that. The Eagle and many of its patrons, the Eagle's attorney, Southern Center for Human Rights, Lambda Legal, and staff ended up filing a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city of Atlanta, really against Police Chief Richard Pennington and the officers involved in the raid. And so the case has drug out for years, as I've said. But what ended up really happening is that that raid and the case and the city having to settle by the judge's order, it really was a turning point in the relationship between the LGBTQ community and the city of Atlanta government. So after the Atlanta Eagle Raid, you really don't see this government-sanctioned discrimination anymore. In a way, you have to say, did the Eagle change Atlanta for the better? Are LGBTQ people getting discriminated by city government anymore? That's generally a no now. It was... Definitely a yes beforehand. You've really seen the city push to heal the wounds from the Atlanta Eagle raid and to really shift direction and how they approach the LGBTQ community. Because after the Eagle raid, we got our first lesbian police chief. Oh. Do you think that's a? Uh,
0: I think that's totally on purpose. <laughs> yes, not a coincidence. It, it is.
1: I definitely think that Chief Shields was put there to help uh, with. understanding the LGBTQ community, yeah, and policing. And so then you also look at positions like that held by Malik Brown in the city of Atlanta and the LGBTQ affairs coordinator for the city of Atlanta and their office of One Atlanta. We did not ever have an LGBTQ liaison. So the city has really been pushing to build a relationship with us in a way that beforehand it wasn't there. It was not not even a thought. And so, this place really is a symbol that I think members of the community that have been here for quite some time look at the Eagle as this beacon of LGBTQ hope in Midtown. And so, as we're sitting here today, I am distraught to see these commemorative bricks being yeah, sold. which
0: I, I got one. And I mean, I want to say I'm excited about it, but we're not excited. Let's just... For a second, explain that. And so the Eagle, which, by the way, is about to open for the night. So if you hear extra loud noises, that's what's happening here. The bar is setting up. Um, The Eagle has been struggling with the pandemic, just like every other bar and restaurant in Atlanta, just like every other Eagle in different countries that you just told us closed. So is it going to close here in Atlanta?
1: Yeah. So their final night is supposed to be this Saturday, um, as you know, or as you mentioned. uh, The pandemic has really taken a large toll on a number of businesses that really are the service industry. And so what we are seeing here is that Richard, the owner of the Eagle, doesn't want to ha- have a packed bar during COVID. That's irresponsible. Of course, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, you also have to understand you've got to pay rent. And so Richard's been unable to work with the property owner and stay in this location and I mean, I'm hoping there's a miracle and he can, but right now it's slated to close this fr- or this Saturday. So we'll s- see what happens. Um, but if the Eagle closes, that means this building would then be vacant.
0: So this this building and the neighboring Kodak building, which is already vacant. And so now, is this what has made this a place in peril? Just that threat of two vacant buildings in Atlanta that loves new and shiny stuff?
1: I would have to say yes. Um, one of the biggest scares for a historic building is being vacant. But what is particularly worrisome about this scenario is you have two buildings that Atlantans have looked at, not just over the past few days since the... Georgia Trust announced the Places in Peril program. They have been constantly on landmarks in the eyes of Atlantans and Georgians that visit for years. And so you have these two historic buildings, one of which, the Kodak Building, has been vacant since 1997. Really? Only being used in 2001 for uh, Shirley Franklin's campaign headquarters. And if any of you don't know who Shirley Franklin is, she's the first female mayor of Atlanta. And the first black woman to be the mayor of a major southern city. That in itself is a huge deal. Then again, what do we consider historic? And I still think that that 2001 use of the building as the campaign headquarters and the Eagles 2009 raid, they both warrant historic status in my opinion. What's most worrisome is the fact that these are going to be two landmarks that are both vacant side by side same property owner.
0: Oh, nice and big not,
1: lot. Yep. And so one thing that is extra worrisome is that there are articles from when the building sold last, and I believe it's 2014, where it literally said the Eagles lease was going to be a five-year and then a three-year lease. And then it definitely left open the opportunity for, the, for development of the two buildings And so I fear that that time has come and the buildings are about to be torn down if we do not push.
0: So what is the million dollar question? I know there's levels of what, who can do what, right? What can the regular person do? I mean, the me's of the world. Can I just make sure people know about this story and know the history and just share it?
1: Yeah, so the biggest tool that we have is raising awareness and making sure that everyone knows how important the Eagle is. And then the biggest thing people can do is really spread awareness of the endangerment of these two buildings. I know we're mostly talking, talking about the Eagle today, but the Kodak is also in the same conversation. Sharing this on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Whatever new whatever. social media
0: has come out. Exactly.
1: In the last two days. <laughs> yeah, share, share, share. We have got to make sure everyone knows what's going on.
0: So there you have it, the story of the Atlanta Eagle. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review or you listen to podcasts. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. I hope everyone has a great weekend and happy Pride.